The Bob Murphy Show, episode 162. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show so this is a little bit late i believe but it was because I had to work on a project. And I don't mean for another enterprise, I mean for this show, I had to try something. So specifically, I did some statistical analysis on one of the claims that's going around the pro-Trump social networking sites talking about, here's a signature showing the uh, crookedness in the vote counting. So I don't wanna keep you all on the edge of your seats the particular thing I looked into, although at first I, I could slant it and make it look like, holy cow, there's a smoking gun here. I checked some other things about it, and this particular claim still is indeterminate, or at least it's uh, there's no smoking gun. The, the gun is warm, but it's not smoking, put it that way. Um, and so I'll explain that a bit later. But I did want to just talk a bit first um, it's going to be interesting to see how the media, let's assume for the sake of argument that Biden is the next president, gets sworn in. I, I'm very curious to see, is the media going to stop with this really annoying, condescending, patronizing habit they've adopted in the Trump years? And I'm not just saying that. Like I distinctly remember where I was in the car. Well, I was in the driver's seat. That's usually where I am in the car. But where the car was when I happened to be inside of it, listening to NPR, when they explained to the listeners, this is why, or, or this is the new policy we're implementing now, you know, because Trump lies so much. Right? So, so what, what I mean is, well, they'll say things like, on Thursday, President Trump spoke before a large audience, well, no, they wouldn't say a large audience, spoke before a crowd in Minneapolis. Trump continued to, tell his listeners without evidence that such and such, blah, 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 right? Well, they say without evidence or claimed falsely, right? And, and they never did that before. And I'm not, again, in, in case some of you think I'm uh, just exaggerating or something, oh, come on, I'm sure they did it for other people. You just don't remember, Bob, because you like your guy, Trump. No, 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 two things. Number one, Trump is not my guy. I don't vote. I didn't even vote for Ron Paul, so I certainly didn't vote for Donald Trump. But number two, as I was saying, I distinctly remember, at least on NPR, when they explained the policy shift and how they were going to start fact-checking the president because he lies so much or whatever. And, and they had experts on, and so they were acknowledging that, yes, this is a bit of editorializing, we suppose, but we feel it's necessary. And here's so-and-so from the School of Journalism at Columbia to tell us about, you know, the last time a world leader lied, it was 1906. So anyway... Now that they inaugurated this policy. So up till then, you know, you could be quoting what Colonel Qaddafi said. That's cool. You could be quoting what the head of North Korea says. Uh, no, no one here dies in concentration camps. They're all just, uh, you know, really slim. 
fine. You know, you, you just report that with a straight face and back to you, Jim. That's fine. But Donald Trump, it was necessary for them to let you know he's not telling the truth or he has no evidence. And then today, as I was driving around thinking about this podcast, folks, you're always in the back of my mind. I heard on NPR a new one. Now, I'm not saying this is the first time they've done this, but it's the first time I've heard it, where, to be clear, this was not somebody they were interviewing to get the person's opinion. This was not a guest. This was the, I don't know if anchor's the right word, but the person who kind of, you know, is the middleman transitioning between segments. This person said something like, and coronavirus cases, in Washington, President Trump and his allies continued to lie about the results of the 2020 election. So they actually said they're lying. Now just think that through for a minute. If you're going to just say, as, as the you know, news person on NPR, you know, you're not offering commentary or political analysis, but you're just the person neutrally stating the facts for the world to hear. It's one thing to say President Trump claimed without evidence that he didn't or that he won the election, right? It's next level to say President Trump claimed falsely. Because you see, you see the distinction there? When you say Trump's making a claim that he hasn't offered evidence for, you're not saying the claim is false. You're just saying it remains to be shown and Mr. Trump here hasn't done his due diligence. He hasn't, you know, the burden of proof is on him, as it were. He hasn't shown us this yet. You're not saying the reverse of what he claims is true. You're just saying one could remain skeptical, understandably. It's next level to say President Trump claimed falsely because now you're just telling the listener what the answer is, all right? And so you have to be really sure right? Because that's kind of the point of, you know, John Stuart Mill's on liberty thing. You know, you got to have your, give your opponent the freedom to say things that you violently disagree with, because if you don't, then you prevent yourself from ever learning that you might be wrong. All right. But, you know, fair enough. Certain things are true. And again, so there the issue was that just violated journalistic practice. If they were quoting somebody who said the sun is cold, they wouldn't say claimed falsely. They would just go ahead and, you know, I mean, think of it. Suppose NPR were doing a story about a flat earth meeting. I don't know if those people have meetings. How could they find the location? Ha <laughs> ha. Right. Suppose they they did a story on that. I don't think they would keep stopping and saying so-and-so claimed falsely that you'd fall off the face of the earth. No, I think what they would do is they would go ahead and quote the person, not editorialize about the person, then say, however, most leading experts agree that the Earth is an oblong spheroid. And then they would interview, you know, so-and-so from the Center for Globe Sales. And they would talk to that person and let that person explain to the listener why what the first guy said was crazy. But it's not the host's job to just tell you what the answer is. So anyway, it's, like I say, it's next level to do that. But what's even crazier is to say so-and-so lied about something. Because now, not only are you telling the listener for sure that what this person said is false, but you also are saying, and we know that he knows it's false. Hence, he's lying as opposed to sincerely telling you something that is not true or he's crazy. And what can you do about that? So really, I mean, lie is a strong word for somebody who's crazy right? So that's what I heard today that they were saying, you know, just matter of factly, 
Donald Trump and his allies in the administration continue to lie about the results of the 2020 election. And now we turn to so-and-so with a story about the Karate Kid. So anyway, that's amazing. So I'm, I'm curious to see now that they've unleashed that, that they've arrogated to themselves the power to tell you who's a liar from the news desk. Now that the NPR, at least, I haven't heard that in other places, but it wouldn't shock me if they've done it. I'm wondering, are they going to give up that power or not? I mean, the Federal Reserve is certainly not going to give up their new powers that they've managed to grab in the midst of this stuff. I mean, <laughs> it's funny. People worry, and, and I was too, worry about like, uh, oh my gosh, are, are the groups, you know, the ISIS and Al-Qaeda and stuff, are they going to, are they going to try to make gains while the U.S. is in disarray from coronavirus? And, this, and no, actually, you know who you need to worry about? It's groups connected to the U.S. government, like the Federal Reserve. They use the coronavirus panic to seize power. The CIA and the FBI are doing a lot of hanky-panky during the Trump years. And likewise, just like everybody else doesn't let a good crisis go to waste, the news media, one way to look at this, it's not simply that they didn't like Trump. It's that they decided we are now in charge of the truth. Not merely reporting views to you and by us running some stories and not other ones, we're kind of filtering it and controlling the narrative that way. But no, we're just going to flat out quote someone, even if it's the president, and just tell you that's a lie. <laughs> so anyway, are they going to go back? That's, that's my long-winded way of getting up to that question. You know... I thought they were going to when I started this rant, but then I convinced myself near the end, I'm not sure that they will because again, that would be giving up power and I don't think they would want to do that. And also now that it's commonplace, even if one or two major networks or outlets did refrain from that practice, would that be, you know, put the genie back in the bottle? I'm not sure. So in any event, I am curious though to see, like they, you know, they're going to do it with the Biden administration. I had a tweet I thought was kind of clever that I sarcastically said, I can't wait for the media now to uh, fact check the new guy. You know, things like President Biden told the assembled crowd falsely that women are only paid 78.2 cents for every man's dollar for the same work. Or President Biden told the assembled crowd without evidence that climate change posed an existential risk to humanity. And what was funny is in the responses that people were, some people were flipping out. And what are you talking about? Oh, so you're saying the uh, census data is wrong and women don't get paid 78% or whatever number I said. And I said to the guy, yeah, the crucial phrase in that was for the same work. And then he came back and said, oh yeah, I thought you'd say that. And I was like, okay, well, then why did you raise the question if you knew what the answer was? And then other people were saying, what are you talking about? Climate change, of course, it poses serious risk. And they didn't see how what they were saying was not the same thing as I said. And then I pointed out to them, oh, so you think the things where they call Trump a liar, there's not like even a partial grain of truth in there? And, and they, they said no. That w when Trump lies, it is unmitigated, just pure fantasy land stuff. Whereas if Joe Biden said climate change poses an existential threat to humanity, that would be totally cool because, well, I mean, what he means is climate change might be bad. By the way, folks, I'll put it in the show notes page. If you haven't looked at this stuff, this isn't me distilling Rush Limbaugh or something. The UN's own synthesis of the peer-reviewed literature on climate change and its impacts doesn't show anything in, in the ballpark of wiping out humanity. 
All right. Like there's standard scenarios are things like, oh, if they don't do anything, GDP in the year 100 might be probably, you know, 5% lower. And, you know, in a crazy knife edge, little minuscule probability scenario, global GDP might be 20% lower. So by the way, even if that were true in that crazy catastrophic scenario, they would still be richer than we are today, right? Because the baseline GDP in the year 2100 is so much higher than today is that even if it were 20% lower, then duh. But in any event, so, so when people just casually like AOC or Bernie Sanders would just casually say how climate change is the number one threat to humanity or is an existential threat. No, that is, that's like Trump saying, oh yeah, the people from Mexico are basically rapists and drug gang murderers. I mean, that's, I mean, his, you could at least quantify to say how far off he is. Whereas these other people, like it's almost like they're dividing by zero. It's kind of hard to say how much is the extinction of humanity? How much, you know, overshoot is that on the threat meter than compared to GDP might be 4% lower in the year 2100. All right. So my point being, you could quite plausibly say of Biden, he claimed without evidence, the climate change, but they don't talk like that. And it's correct that they don't talk like that because the point of the media is not to tell you the answer on such a subtle, nuanced, controversial subject like that. They're just supposed to tell you what so-and-so said. And if they want to have analysis, then they go get an expert to talk about it. You don't just have the host do the research behind the scenes and then decide on something that's controversial. Now, I get their point is, no, it's not controversial. Okay, well, deciding what is and is not controversial is itself controversial. What do you think of that? All right, so I'll be curious to see if NPR at all decide to drop that language when they go back to reporting without commentary on what some dictator said who runs concentration camps. All right. Something else I want to talk about, this whole dispute over the election results, it's amazing to me how after virtually or almost four years now of the media lying through its teeth about things Trump did, or how he was tied to Russia and all this stuff, now is just so effortlessly switching to telling us not only did Trump lose the election, but you're not allowed to even question it. And you're a bad person. And moreover, you're, you're fomenting civil unrest. You might lead to riots. Like, no, it's not Republicans who riot, by the way. Okay. So let me put it this way. Whatever the level of plausibility that you think are in these claims, there are clearly millions of people who are taking this seriously. And as of, I'm recording this, uh, folks, November 11th, just to, so you understand where I'm coming from if you're trying to backdate it. So at this point, like I say, it's the media has all told us Trump's the loser and he's a crybaby and national security problems are arising now because he won't do the transition. And plus he fired his secretary of defense. And, uh, but Trump still has lawsuits pending and various bloggers and podcast hosts, you know, on the conservative side are saying Trump's probably not going to win, but hey, technically he could do this, this, and this, and you know, that kind of thing. So whatever your level of belief in these things or their credibility, millions of Trump fans as of right now are still holding out hope, right? Like I think that a lot of them think, yeah, it looks like Biden's going to win, but 
hey, you know, Trump shocked us before. Let's see what he's got up his sleeve. Hey, Giuliani took on the mob. Maybe he knows something we don't know, right? I don't know what ethnicity I'm turning into right there. I think I'm turning into an Italian guy. So, yeah, you got this guy Trump, eh? You know what I'm talking about? He's got some cojones, huh? All right. So, whatever the level your belief, or sorry, whatever plausibility you ascribe to these beliefs, millions of people at least are holding out hope. And so what I want to tell you is if the goal is to get them to drop this, then the worst thing you can possibly do is just tell them you're stupid and paranoid. You're making all this. This is nonsense. This is crazy talk. Shut up and bow down to your new leader. That's the last thing in the world you want to do. That guarantees that they will think this is real. Because if it really were stupid and there really were no evidence as they keep being told, then go ahead, let's talk about it. Make your case, tough guy. And then what would they do? It would be obvious. But yet since they're being lectured at or forbidden from talking about it, then that means you can't air it out. And so people on the other side can't rip holes in it. And so all the people who believe it no, is they're not allowed to talk about it in polite company, but then behind closed doors, they do talk about it with people who think like them, right? Because it's got to be people who think like them, otherwise they might get in trouble if they're doing something naughty. And so they're all just going to share the same things around in the people who think like them already. And so that's just going to encourage them to believe that, yes, this is true, and the liberal media is afraid of the truth, and that's why they got to ban it. Whereas if it really is stupid, and there's no evidence, like for real, not just because NPR says so, then go ahead. Yeah, present your case, tough guy. Right? It's like nobody feels threatened by the, the flat earth people. I, I don't even know if those people really believe that stuff. I almost think they're trolling, but whatever. If there are people out there who really do believe the flat earth stuff, why are we not worried about them? Because they're so obviously wrong, they're not going to take over. So in the same vein, if you think this is a ridiculous narrative, then air it out. Blow it up. Now, there are situations, there are scenarios where I think it is appropriate for people with a big platform not to give a platform to those who are below them in some type of hierarchy and whose views they consider noxious, all right? So I'm not saying, like, I would have an, an actual neo-Nazi on my show to critique him. I mean, for one thing then in my Wikipedia article, right underneath bullet point one, Bob lost an inflation bet. Bullet point number two would be Bob had a neo-Nazi on his show. I mean, besides Dave Smith, right? So that's why I wouldn't do it in reality, or that's the obvious reason. But I mean, saying even beyond that, no, I wouldn't do that because by us debating it, it looks like libertarians flirted with this idea or something, right? That's also one of the reasons amongst others that I didn't sign that stupid anti-fascist pledge because to me, that looked like it was, you know, protesting too much. Like the fact that we had to sit, sort of like, you know, signing a pledge saying, I haven't hit my kid today or something. So I'm not ruling that sort of thing out. But in this situation, it's not like you're containing the virus or the epidemic before, or you wouldn't contain the epidemic before it breaks out, that doesn't make sense. Containing the virus before it breaks out. It's already out there. Millions of people, Trump supporters are already talking about this stuff and sharing videos and blah, blah, blah. So it's already out there. So at this point, to just try to make it go away by wagging your finger at people and asserting that, no, this is nonsense. There's no evidence. When they're like, what? 
What about this video? What, <laughs> what about all these affidavits from these pe people who work there? What about, and they can point to all the evidence and then you just say, no, there's no evidence. Shut up, Sorlu. I mean, what, that's going to convince them that you, they're right. So that's the wrong thing to do. By the way, let me just also, I'm getting worked up about this stuff, uh, mention to say there is no evidence for something, I mean, doesn't mean you're saying it's false. So that, that issue, which I pointed out earlier, but also it's it, it, in a certain sense, depending on the context, it's an extremely strong statement, right? So for example, I wouldn't say there's no evidence that fiscal stimulus helps an economy, right? Like you, you might imagine I would say that, like if NPR were interviewing me or something. Today, Robert Murphy claimed without evidence the private sector militaries would outperform government counterparts, right? You, they could be interviewing me and you might expect me to say something like, well, I mean, if we look at the data, the, there's really no evidence that fiscal stimulus helps the depressed economy. I wouldn't say that because there is evidence. I just think there's more evidence going the other way, right? To say there's no evidence, I mean, I can scarcely imagine a world in which there would be no evidence for some broad empirical claim. It's just when you weigh the balance of the evidence falls in favor of me thinking fiscal stimulus doesn't help an economy. All right, so that's what was so annoying or one of the things that's so annoying to me about these people. I'll give you a different way of making the same point. When I was making on Twitter, by the way, I'm Bob Murphy Econ at Twitter, folks. I'm kind of a funny guy. I'm not gonna, I mean, for Twitter, I'm not saying I'm ready to do a, stand-up special next week, but for Twitter, it's pretty good stuff. And I was making a bunch of points about, you know, the election and voter fraud and things like that. And I was, no, I know what it was specifically. I said, there's a lot of voter fraud deniers on this website. Of course, I was talking about, you know, or linking it to the climate change debate and just, you know, playing the Trump card. And so some people got mad and said, oh, that's a Mott and Bailey thing. And partly why I did it is because, yeah, that's what climate change is, you idiot. That's my point. How I'm showing, I wasn't making fun of, vote, of the voting issue and people who disagree with me on that. I was making fun of the people who use the term climate denier. Just so how goofy that is. But in any event, and notice too, it would be voting deniers. <laughs> to make it analogous to climate denier. Like, no, I'm not denying there's a climate. Oh, climate change denier. Okay. I know that extra syllable sometimes. So in any event, so I said that that there's a lot of voting deniers or vo voter fraud deniers on this website. And some people got mad and were saying, oh, come on, that's, that's a straw man. No one's denying that there wasn't, that there was any uh, voter fraud. We're just saying it wasn't enough to tip the election. And then other people were going, what are you talking about, Bob? There's no evidence that there was any voter fraud. So you see how they, if not literally contradict each other, come very close to it that those are the two re reactions from the critics on that. Folks, let's take a break from the discussion for me to once again remind you that if you like what you hear, you like the guests that I bring on and the perspective I offer in the solo episodes, by all means, consider making a contribution. The more such contributions I get, the more episodes I can do per month just as a justification for using my scarce labor hours on this outlet that I love, but yet does not fully pay the bills. And so I can only do it part-time thus far. For details on how you can do that and all the special bonuses, depending on your level of contribution, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Let me just mention, 
If you've made a qualifying contribution and you're supposed to get let into the Facebook secret group, shh, it's a secret. And it's been more than two weeks since you've made the contribution and I haven't gotten back to you. That means I somehow missed the note in my inbox. And so don't be shy. Please get in touch and just let me know. Uh, make sure that I get everybody in there who's supposed to be in there. Last thing I'll mention is whether you contribute or not, another way you can certainly help is subscribe to me on YouTube. And when you come across an episode that you realize some of your friends might be interested in or, you know, a coworker, and I'm going to be trying to make more episodes that are catering to someone who's not a true believer, as it were, then sharing the episodes with people like that is another great way for me to get the podcast out in front of more people. Thanks, everybody, for your support. And let's get back to the episode. All right. So back to an earlier point I was making, I was shocked because as I was making some of these points about election, you know, not being sacrosanct and why do we trust these people? We know that they would, the Democratic Party had no problem rigging the thing and stealing it from uh, Bernie Sanders or I could, to say steal means I know he would have won in the counterfactual. I, I don't know that. But certainly tilting the the scales or, or uh, stacking the deck against Bernie Sanders, both when he was up against Clinton and then, of course, this time around. And I said, so you don't think they would cheat to take it from Trump? I mean, think of it as like this. In philosophy classes, it's a standard technique to say, if you had a time machine, would it be ethical to go back in time and kill baby Hitler? I don't know why they always kill baby Hitler. I guess because he that's the easiest time to kill him. Like, you know, probably, you know, adolescent Hitler would be moody and skilled with a machete or something. So that's the standard thing to do, right? So they've spent four years telling us Trump is Hitler and what people wouldn't be willing to cheat to stuff the ballot box if it meant getting rid of Trump. I mean, think of the heroism of people in, you know, resisting in the resistance in France during the Nazi occupation you're saying someone who looks at that and thinks Trump is Hitler wouldn't be able morally to justify putting, taking some mail-in ballots that, you know, had no home and putting in Biden and turning those in the, in the wee hours of the day after the election. You kidding me? And I'm saying it like that because that some people that's, that's the level of, oh, I don't think Bob, that people would actually cheat in an election. Huh? You know, like, like that's some kind of nut job theory I have. Give me a break. You know how many murders there were last year? You're saying there weren't at least as many people willing to cheat with one vote? All right. So what was interesting, though, is I got into it with somebody from GMU. I won't say who it is because I don't want to, for one thing, if people are brawling with you on Twitter, it's kind of weird to then go like shine a spotlight on it because you're not, you're not yourself until you've had your Snickers. Um, so I won't say anything, but also that I don't want to, you know, start something let me just say, it, it, it's not Pete Becky. It's not Selgin. I don't even know if Selgin is at GMU anymore. And it's not Tyler Cowen. So there, I'll, I'll just say it's like the, uh, so for those of you who wanted to resuscitate bad blood, it's not your favorite whipping boys. But anyway, so this guy from GMU is arguing with me and, uh, and he's talking about how, well, well no, we got to defer to the local processes. I mean, you know, let the, the man on the ground use the circumstances of time and place. So he's quoting Hayek at me, like, you know, to zing me. And, and I even pointed out 
some anomalies. It's like, well, did you see about this? Did what you know? What about them not letting the the observers in? And Jordan was it Pennsylvania or Jordan? Uh, Pennsylvania, and things like that. And he, and what about the software glitch? And he said, oh, the results of human action, but not of human design. And then some guy posted a video of like those kids, you know, like going, oh, like somebody just gets dunked on or something. So, and I'm, I was just kind of mystified at first. And then I said, hang on a second. All of these arguments you're using, or, or he, and he also said, let's trust in local processes. Don't, you know, uh, have the, he didn't say the, did he say, he might've said fatal conceit. I don't remember. But, you know, saying, who are you just to swoop in and just render your judgment, defer to the people who are on the ground kind of stuff, right? So doing sort of an anti-interventionist mindset. And he was clearly referring to Austrian economics to show me that, come on, Bob, deep down, you know you're wrong here. So I was like, what? And I was like, hang on a second. I said, just about all of your arguments you just used would also prove that the Bush administration didn't lie us into invading Iraq. Are you saying that? And he came back and said something like, yes, of course Bush didn't lie about Iraq. The fact that you think otherwise is disturbing or something like that. All right? That might not be, that's not an exact quote, but that's definitely the spirit of what he said. And he put lie in quotation marks. So I don't know if that was some weird hair splitting thing he was doing or he just meant like the very idea that a U.S. president might lie. I can't even write it without putting quotation marks around. I mean, <laughs> let me go sit down for a minute. Oh, U.S. official lying about war? That's inconceivable. Right, that's that's the attitude I was getting from him, um, and so I was mystified. And I was like, well, "How can that be?" And I, I think I, I know what it is. It's because if your job is to talk about like Buchanan and constitutional design, and you know checks and balances and stuff like that, like you you know your your whole deal is to study political systems and how they distribute power and how can they guard the guardians and that kind of stuff, like. That would, you know, that imagine like your your favorite crypto fan who studies those protocols and how, you know, all the different uh, techniques that they can use for verification and so on, you know, that, that, and oh, gee, what if the guy with the black hat comes in and does this? Or, you know, what about if there's a rogues, how much computing power would they need to crack the system? Da, da, da. So likewise, you know, think of how much they're into that stuff and how much they love it and how much if they found the particular cryptocurrency that was their personal favorite, think of how much they would hang on to that, like there's their baby and someone criticizing it. Think of how emotional they get, right? Well, that's how if what you do is study designs to limit government, you would adore the US system. Yeah, not the outcome, but the system. Because it is cool, you know, given that you're going to have a state, the US system is pretty good. You know, given that you're going to have a bunch of guys sitting around designing something, I mean, say what you will about the Federalists, at least they had an ethos, right? So that just hit me. And then even to make it strike closer to home, there's lots of libertarian economists who just love the way the market works. They're not dispassionate about it. They're very passionate about it. And that sometimes slips into when you're talking about entrepreneurs in the real world, you look at them with rose-colored glasses. That, you know, you, you end up elevating them as they're better people than others. And by the way, some people listening are like, yes, yes, I like what you've done there, yes. But I'm just pointing out it's the same type of thing. So if, if you can recognize why it's clearly wrong 
when this guy from GMU seemed like incapable of contemplating that someone counting votes in Georgia might be putting his thumb on the scales. I shouldn't, well, anyway. Likewise, or the, the cryptocurrency people and how you might, you might say, yeah, those, those guys, they are kind of over the top, aren't they? Like, geez, you, you criticize crypto and they bite your head off and give you a three-hour lecture on hash power or something. So likewise, I'm saying with the economists, just be careful. I think we do the same thing. So be the change you want to see in the world. So anyway, this guy, and I know he would say, if you heard me say that stuff, no, 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 I'm not saying that people are angels. That's the point. A well-designed constitutional system with checks and balances takes people who are fallen and, uh, well, you probably say would flawed, and makes it so they can't take over. This is the system corrects itself, okay? And I'm just saying there's the arguments by which a free market economist expects there to be a benign outcome in the market crucially depends on certain things like respect for property rights or whatever. So the spontaneous order that emerges because of the state, we have no a priori reason to think that that's going to be a good thing unless we just, you know, go into vacuous terminology where any equilibrium is socially optimal. And well, yeah, in Stalinist Russia, I mean, the the killing stopped once there was an equilibrium and Stalin realized the marginal cost of murdering one more political opponent was lower than the benefit. And so therefore, I mean, yeah, you could, you could do that. But I don't have any reason to think that outcome is particularly noble or corresponding to some external criterion of goodness. All right, so I, I, I realize though that that's the thing, because I don't study political systems, right? I'm not, you know, I don't got anything against James Buchanan, but it's not like I sit up at night thinking about how awesome the constitution is or even an ideal constitution if it's not, you know, founded on unanimity. And when you push that, if it is, well, then that's consistent with Rothbard land if it's, you know, if it really is unanimous in terms of property rights. So just to cap that discussion, the thing with Trump is he's so crude and he so violates that image for the people who just like to say, and also, for, I mean, the, forget the GMU people, just like the NPR people, people who are the, you know, Harvard or Columbia or something and study government or political science, what whatnot. I mean, I mean, yeah, there's some places like literally called the school of government. <laughs> you think those people are minarchists? So they just adore the state. Like it's just, I mean, I think they, they you know, it's, it's one, you know, the ultimate aphrodisiac or, or, or uh, temptation is power. And so they just like to study power, right? Like, oh, isn't this fascinating? Right? Just like, you know, every guy probably wants to be jacked like Arnold Schwarzenegger, but the next best thing is, like, what if you read books about it and, you know, you followed him around as a, as a reporter or whatever, like somebody who's really into that. You know, if you couldn't do it yourself, at least study the people who do. So likewise, if your thing is just political power and, wow, there are some human beings that look at, look at what they can do. Gee, look what they can do with their will. How many millions of other people just bend to it? Woo, just gives me, it sends a thrill up my leg, right? So there's that element too, and so Trump comes along 
And the only way that system works is if the public believes in that. If someone comes along like Trump and shows them how naked and just corrupt the whole thing is, either from the perspective of Trump supporters because they can see how much the media and the CIA and whatever just made up garbage for three years about it. Um, by the way, folks, if you haven't heard or, or seen a takedown of the inspector general's inquiry into the FISA court applications, listen to that, right? So I'll put a link in the show notes page. I did that in a previous episode. So for the links for this episode, just go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 162. I would tell you the show number for the other one, but I don't have it off the top of my head and also I don't want to confuse anybody. So this this episode you're listening to right now is 162. So for all these links, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 162. But anyway, if you haven't seen that, go listen to that. I mean, I go through it as quickly as possible to condense it and tell you the the shocking, most shocking points. But it's not just sour grapes and you know, MAGA hat wearing right-wing loons who are upset about the deep state trying to take Trump out. I mean, it's it's shocking. The stuff that's in the report after the fact where the government sort of policed itself and said, okay, uh, after further review, here's where where we stand. The stuff that's in the record as to what the FBI agents did when they were applying to the FISA court to get the, you know, surveillance powers on some Trump campaign officials. Okay, so let me just, in the remainder of this episode, explain to you what I did. And you can see how it's interesting the way this thing played out. I had seen articles about the potential voter fraud and stuff. And one of the arguments that I found very compelling was to say, hey, if you look at certain of these you know, disputed states, there's a huge discrepancy in the votes for Trump and the Republican Senate candidate in that state versus the, dis- the difference between the votes for Biden and the Democratic Senate candidate. You know, so looking at the votes for Trump and Biden and then the, how much w- w- did they differ from the down ticket people in their own party. And the numbers I saw showed a huge gap on the Biden side, but a very small gap on the Trump side. And so there's like, whoa, So it looked like, certainly what the authors of this piece were telling you it meant, was that they must have just made up a bunch of phony Biden votes, but didn't have him vote, you know, or didn't have those fictional voters vote for the down ticket candidates. And that's why Biden, you know, has so much much of a bigger gap. So that was the thing I said, you know what, I like that because also that wouldn't be hard for me to investigate myself to see if that's true. And also I wanted to check it against some other things just to see, you know, whether those those figures mean as much in full context as they do when in isolation, as they were in the article I saw. So I looked into that, and again, let me just cut to the chase. Although there's some stuff that looks a little bit fishy, it's because the data are so noisy, I can't say in good conscience that from my investigation, this particular claim show something funny that in other words, I cannot distinguish this from noise. doesn't mean it didn't happen, but I'm just saying it's, there's not a signature in the data as it were, at least on this particular claim. So let me be clear. I don't know. Let me be clear. I've always said you can keep your plan if you like it. So let me be clear. It's, 
I'm not here saying, hey, I looked into it, folks. Turns out Biden won fair and square. That's not what I'm saying. I looked at one claim because I realized this is something I could go take a half an hour and check myself in Excel. And so that's why I did it. Certainly, if it had come the other way and there was a smoking gun here, I would have been like, dum, 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 and telling everybody. I mean, I kind of become a hero among the MAGA crowd. But since I didn't find it, let me go ahead and just show you what I did, just so you know. Okay. Um, so let me first, I'll do it this way. Let me use correct numbers, accurate numbers, to try to make you think something really funny is going on. All right. So listen to these numbers. If you go to Michigan and you look at the number of votes for Trump, it was 2,647,004. By the way, I got these numbers from the Washington Post. I'll put the exact hyperlink or URL if you want to double check my numbers, folks. Um, but I, I took this snapshot as it were, I think this data or these data are as of something like November 10th. So just keep that in mind that if you go to check my numbers and I'm off by a little bit, it's either because the Washington Post was drawn a different data set or because the numbers have changed because they were still technically counting when I took the snapshot. So there were, let's say, 2,647,004 votes for Trump, whereas for the Republican Senate candidate in Michigan, there were 2,636,619, right? So that's a difference of 0.4%. So pretty close. Most of the people who voted for Trump also voted for the Republican Senate candidate. However, if you look at the Democratic side, 2.7956 million people voted for Biden. I had to keep going because every decimal was, a, was above five and so I would, or was five or above. And so I would have been wrong because I was, should have rounded. So I had to keep going. I painted myself into a corner there with math. All right, so basically 2.8, do it that way. Million people voted for Biden, whereas 2.7 million voted for the Democratic candidate. A difference of 2.6%, right? So again, just looking at Michigan here, the, the excess of votes for Trump over votes for the Republican Senate candidate was only 0.4%, whereas the excess of Biden over the Senate candidate was 2.6%. In Georgia, it was even closer. By the way, so for Georgia, there were two Senate races. So I just took the, the non-special one, right? One of them was called a special race. And so I'm calling this the, and they, they're both going to runoffs. But I'm looking at the, you know, the votes cast, even though this isn't decisive for who the winner is. For the Senate candidate, I don't remember who the person's name, what the person's name was. That was not the special election, in case you are curious if you go to do this yourself and see, well, wait a minute, there's two races. Which one was Bob using? All right, so in any event, with Georgia, listen to this. The percentage difference of Trump versus the Senate candidate was 0.0%, right? Even if you went to one decimal place, you can't even see it. That's how close they were. Whereas with Biden, the gap was 4.3%. Now, what's even crazier here, if you use the absolute numbers, in Georgia, again, using the the main Senate race, not the special one. The gap between votes for Trump and votes for the Republican Senate candidate were 129, right? That's how close those two numbers were. They were only 129 apart. And actually the Senate candidate got more than Trump did. 129 more to be specific. Whereas for Biden, the gap, how many more votes did Biden get in Georgia than 
the person running for Senate on the Democratic ticket in the main race, not the special one, the gap was, was it bigger than 129? Yeah, it was. Actually, you know what it was? 102,082. So yeah, somewhat bigger than 129. So if I just told you those two things, wouldn't you be like, holy cow, those cheating? Oh my goodness. It's like the same people that want to steal my house also are willing to cheat. I'm, I'm flummoxed. I can't believe it. Okay, so that's pretty good stuff, right? By the way, I couldn't do Pennsylvania, Nevada, or Wisconsin with this technique because they didn't have Senate races. So that's why I'm focusing on Michigan and Georgia. Okay, so that's, whew, that's pretty crazy. Okay, the problem is, the reason I'm saying that's not a smoking gun is I went and started filling in those same data for other states. And if it had been on the Republican side, always, you know, under one percentage point difference, then I would have said, heck yeah, that's crazy. But that's, that's not what I found, right? So I only did it for one, two, three, four, five, six, six other states before I stopped because I was, I was seeing already that these numbers aren't that far out of line of, you know, or there's nothing crazy about these numbers what I'm getting at. So I started Alabama. I, I, what I did is I got a list, folks, of the states that had Senate races. Remember, in case you're puzzled, the way the Constitution set it up, it's staggered. So each Senate term is six years, but there's an election every two years. And so they break it up so that one third of the candidates come up every two years. And the, the rationale for that was they wanted there to be some continuity in the Senate, which is like the analog of the House of Lords. Whereas with the House, every two years, constant turnover. Like the people are fickle and if their mood changes, well, we got to reflect that. Whereas the Senate was going to be a moderating influence and only turnover gradually so as to, you know, keep the passions in check. I should go teach at GMU. I got this stuff down. I know what's up. Ask me about the three-fifths compromise. Go ahead, ask me. All right, so, and even I made a list of the states based on whether they had a Senate race this cycle. And so I, from Alabama to Delaware is what I filled in. And you're saying, why didn't you do the whole thing about, because I had to manually grab it, right? So I had to go hover my mouse over the state on the Washington Post map and then read off that. I couldn't even highlight them, right? Because it was like a graphic. I had to go remember and go type it in and check again. It was taxing my, my memory in these late, late years. Okay, so anyway... I'm just saying going through it from Alabama through Delaware, just looking at there. On the Republican side, the biggest percentage changes in Delaware where Trump over the Senate candidate was 8.2%. Right, so Trump had 200,603 votes, whereas the Senate candidate only had 185,444. So let me just mention, so that's eight percentage points, but it's only 15,000 votes and change. So I don't know how you but presumably the percentage is the relevant thing. And in Alabama, Trump had 3.5% more than the Senate candidate, right? So the fact that Biden in Georgia had 4.3% more isn't so, you know, that much of a smoking gun given that those, you know, Trump has such numbers in other states, right? So that, that by itself isn't something that's anomalous. Um, and then, you know, Biden has bigger gaps in Arkansas and Colorado, for example. So not only is the gap that we see in Georgia not all that big 
it, it or it's not even big among other Biden states. So you could say, oh, yeah, because the Democrats are cheating all over the place. But the like I say, the fact that just me doing six states up to that point and seeing two that are comparable on the Trump side, that's when I stopped and said, okay, this this doesn't seem to be a smoking gun. All right, so again, let me mention, this doesn't mean there was no cheating. I'm just saying this particular angle and those numbers you may be yourselves be seeing in certain articles, you got to be careful with that, not to draw too much from it. Now, here's what's interesting. This last thing I'll, I'll mention, I'll wrap it up. I realized it's, it's an epistemological puzzle because clearly if it had turned out that there was a big gap from you know Biden versus the Democratic Senate candidate in percentage terms, whereas on the Republican side, it was always less than you know, 1%, let's say. And on the Biden side, the gap was really big just for those controversial states, you know, where they stopped and then restarted the count in the morning where people, you know, people are posting pictures of like <laughs> vans driving up and bringing in 169,000 votes and stuff, which I can't verify the authenticity of. If, if it were just in those states where, you know, Biden's numbers were 12 percentage points higher and everywhere else, it was less than 1%, the same thing on the Republican side for all the states then that would be incredibly fishy and everybody who wasn't completely in the can for Biden, or I guess you'd say in the tank, in the can for Biden sounds better though, because yeah, you're in the can. You're on the can and then you're in the can. Would see, I think would concede that, whoa, that is something fishy. If again, if the numbers were really heavily pronounced for Biden just in the states where he needed the votes to be quote found, and then on the, on the Republican side, it wasn't like that anywhere, then yeah, that would be incredibly fishy. But keep in mind the argument from the uh, Democrats when they say, oh, so if it's so easy to fix the election and give it to Biden, then why didn't the Democrats also win the House? Or why didn't they win the Senate? And so what's interesting there is the, the two things cancel out, right? Because in other words, I want to say to them, wait a minute, are you guys saying that if we go look at the state-by-state state breakdowns, Biden got way more votes than, than the people down ticket from him? Like, isn't that weird? There are people, you know, who, who wanted Biden, but they don't want other Democrats. Like, is, wouldn't that be fishy? And especially like if it was the pattern we said here. So notice they're almost like saying, well, how come this is true when they're almost admitting something fishy is going on, right? So it's kind of a weird thing if you think about it in terms of the, what, what the votes would have to look like to support their narrative, all right? And so, because what's more likely, you would think, given that they're, you know, they got some blank ballots that they have waiting, ready to say, okay, how many do we need to make sure Joe wins this state? And then they go get it at 2 a.m. Why wouldn't they also have clicked to make the other candidates win? And for the very reason that we're talking about, not just because, hey, why don't, why don't we cheat for them too? Because the marginal cost is virtually zero to us, you know, given we're punching it for Biden or whatever they're doing, marketing enough. I don't know how the system works in all these different states. Why don't we go ahead and mark it also for our Senate candidates and our House candidates? Besides just, duh, why not do that? But also, because wouldn't they think through and realize it will look weird if we just find all of a sudden, especially if they have a way like in terms of the clock of distinguishing when those votes came in. So in other words, it's not merely that the percentage of people who vote for the president, but not for the down ticket or vice versa, you know, varies from state to state or whatever, but also 
you wouldn't think it would be tied just to the mail-in thing, right? Like you wouldn't think that all the mail-in votes should just have the president on there and not the down ticket people. You'd think there'd be some, you know, a mixture in there as well. So if the thing inflating Biden's number relative to the Senate candidate was because of this process, then not only would it just be in the aggregates that you'd see this signature, but if you could somehow break it down and look at when the various chunks of the votes came in, then it would be really crystal clear that, oh, wait a minute. In other words, on election day and from the mail-in ballots that we processed up during election day, it looked like, you know, the excess of Biden votes to Democratic candidate or down ticket votes was 0.8%. But then from 12 a.m. to 6 a.m. the next day of the votes we counted in that period, 82% of the people there voted for Biden and not the down, like that would be kind of weird, right? Okay, so in any event, precisely to hide that fact, you would think if they were going to pad the you know piles with fake votes that they filled in and were holding in the ready to see do we need these things, then you would think they would go ahead and fill out the other ones too to make them blend in with the general, with the other votes. Because otherwise they would have a telltale sign that, hey, this is phony, right? And so... I think most of you, if you understood what I was saying, would agree with me, right? But then, (laughs) isn't this a weird situation where when I go to look for this in the Excel thing, if I did find that there was this crazy excess of just Biden votes that stood out like a sore thumb, then that would clearly be evidence of tampering. And And so we'd all say, yeah, it looks like the Democrats maybe are guilty. But yet, if we assume the Democrats are guilty, what I would expect the world to look like is exactly this where there is no obvious telltale sign in that dimension. And so isn't that a weird thing where if I had seen state A of the world, I would have been sure that, you know, the situation occurred. But seeing state not A of the world is what I would have expected, is the likely thing to see if the situation is true. So it's weird as a you know a Bayesian updater, this really doesn't change it. I guess it's the thing, like my priors could have gone to close to 100% had this turned out one way, but they don't move away with the other, you know, with this other thing because that's this is what I would have expected to see. So this really doesn't give me much information. So at first I was worried, like, am I somehow <laughs> the ultimate Trump stooge or lackey? Because, so you're saying, Bob, if, you, if it came out one way, you'd be sure the Democrats were guilty. If it come out the other way, you say, hey, well, that's what I would expect to see if they were guilty. Like, that does look dangerously close to, but but notice that's not what I'm, I mean, that is what I'm doing, but that isn't as bad as it sounds. That's what I'm getting at. That it's just meaning I'm not really updating. So from my other information, do I think the Democrats cheat or not doesn't really move much based on this test is what I'm getting at. But I did want to go ahead and walk through this to show you in case you had seen some of those claims. Because that was the most compelling claim I had seen, by the way, I'll, I'll say that. That's partly why I investigated this because I said, okay, yes, if this pans out, then that is a smoking gun in my book, but it didn't pan out. So to me, you know, some of those other things are fishy, but, oh, and the other reason too to check this was because it was such a big number, like the one in Georgia, again, 102,000 excess Biden votes compared to negative 129 excess Trump votes. So that right there, if if that looks like evidence that there's 100,000 fake votes, that's obviously humongous and that, you know, would be decisive. So or I don't don't know what the gap is in in Georgia, but that's a big number, obviously. Okay, so I will wrap it up there. Thanks everyone for your attention and I will see you next time. Remember to share this video, those you cherish. 
You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.